Welcome to the Story Collider's Stories of COVID-19. This is our third and final series of COVID-19 stories that we've aired over the course of the pandemic. These stories were recorded in the spring and originally set to air in June, but at that time the country was reopening, most people wanted to think about anything but COVID, and I thought perhaps I will save the remainder of these stories for the fall. When we have some distance and are ready to reflect on what we've been through. I know, so naive. (laughs) Because obviously COVID is as much a presence in most of our lives now as it really has ever been. Back home in Kanawha County, West Virginia, where my grandmother lives and my little brother is an epidemiologist for the health department, the case rate is higher now than it ever was in 2020. And that's true in many places. So as cases surge again, I see these stories in a different light. Some are important reminders of what we have suffered and lost already, warnings of what we could continue to lose. Some of them help me have a sense of humor about the situation when I don't feel like having a sense of humor. Some of them reveal the important work that's been done during this time, whether it was in the hospital, the lab, or the home, and Remind me that this work is being done by people who are thinking and feeling and suffering in the same ways that all the rest of us are. But I think most importantly, some of these stories, and maybe all of these stories, show that unconditional love was, is, and will remain the only way that we can get through this. And I don't know about you, but that's something that I really need to remember right now, as my frustration boils over on a daily basis. So, in today's episode, I want to kick things off in the same way that we started our original Stories of COVID-19 series back in November 2020, with New York City nurse Harvey Katz. First, I'm going to reshare Harvey's original story that he recorded with us last summer as a reminder. If you've already heard it, maybe you want to listen again or maybe you want to skip ahead, because the second story we're sharing today is a follow-up story that Harvey told for us in June at our Proton Prom livestream fundraiser. And it's about how he is, nearly a year later, processing that trauma that he experiences in his first story. So, without any further ado, here's Harvey, as recorded in his Brooklyn home last summer. March feels like a million years ago. And not because time flies, but because time is a social construct and my social distancing game is like super strong these days. So like four billion years ago in early March, we had our first and maybe our last ever family vacation. We went to Disney World. We touched handrails. We stood in long lines of crowds that collectively sighed in long exhales. Their hot breath on my neck was like a nice breeze. We didn't know that It's a Small World was a factual statement and not just the mutterings of animatronic optimists. People kept talking about this virus in China, and I thought they were all hypochondriacs. The flu, I kept saying, worry about the flu. I took a chill pill and ate a Pluto-themed veggie dog that passed through no less than seven hands before entering directly into my mouth. Hands, hot dog, mouth. That sounds ludicrous and straight up reckless now. Less than two weeks later, I was pulling the acrylic nail off a woman who was gasping for breath. The oximeters can't get a good reading through the fake nails, so I was in a near panic and using my own nails to pry off one of hers. 
I'm a brand new nurse. And this was two months into my employment at my very first nursing job straight out of nursing school. So I was, and I still am, living and dying by the numbers because, well, instinct is not instant. So that nail had to go. She was also in liver failure, which has this intoxifying effect on the body. So she kept ripping off this BiPAP mask that was pushing air into her wrecked lungs. And then she was subsequently suffocating on repeat. Her oxygen monitors would alarm every 10 minutes or so. And so I'd have to race into the room, but not before I went through this arduous process of putting on my PPE. And you could put on PPE a million times, and it's still a clumsy process when you're in a rush. Your hands become these dumb, worthless worthless blocks with performance anxiety while someone on the other side of a windowless door just slips into an oxygen-deprived blackout and hurries towards the light. You have to resist the urge to just run into the room and start mouth-to-mouthing a stranger with a potentially deadly infection. The floor isn't lava, but the air is. I kept thinking about people who are drowning whose panic ends up killing the person trying to save them, which in turn kills them both. Alarm, run, PPE, reoxygenate, leave, alarm, PPE, over and over for hours. This was my first COVID patient. All I could think was, oh my God, we are not prepared. This is not okay. We are not okay. There's no way I'm going to be able to do this day after day. That morning was the last time I would kiss my wife for months. I wish I would have known that and I would have made it a kiss that could sustain us for a while. But it was just a, have a good day, I'll come home and kiss you later, kiss. That night I slept on the living room floor. A few days later I moved out of my house and into my friend's empty apartment. My wife is immunocompromised, but she's also my sounding board, my therapist, my person, my little spoon, the cutest of the cutlery. I'd been leaning on her support extra hard recently because in the second, then the third, then the fourth opinion of my doctors, I may or may not have cancer, and the mystery was only going to be solved by a surgery booked for April 10th. It was daunting to think about going through this without her. It was heartbreaking to think about her going through this alone. I packed for a week, not knowing I'd be gone for nearly three months. Right after that patient with a fake nail, I got transferred to the ICU and I was a nurse there as the first wave of COVID grew and crested in New York City. We took care of the sickest patients in the hospital. It was the closest I will hope I will ever get to living in a sci-fi movie. Every patient had COVID. Every patient was being kept alive by machines, machines that fed the milky formulations and vasoconstrictors through their IV lines, machines that pushed air into their lungs, bags that collected less and less urine each day as their kidneys failed. Patients were given a 20% chance of survival, but I suspect that number was elevated. We wore PPE even in the hallways. Between the gowns and the goggles and the masks, it was hot and disorienting. Every shift was like preparing for a wrestling weigh-in. By the end of it, I had a raging headache and I couldn't stand up without spinning. There's this level of intimacy between a patient in the ICU and a nurse that's unreproducible in any other part of my life. They're totally and completely dependent on you. You know more about their bodies than their mama. You know more about their bodies than they do. You know more about their bodies than you know about your own body. And there were no visitors allowed in the hospital at this time, so I made sure that I spoke to them extra kindly, even though they were sedated, because you never know what might get through, and I always took a minute to hold their hands and tell them they hadn't been abandoned. Like I said, I'm a new nurse, better at caring than curing at this point in my career, and my love language has always been access service. At this point in the COVID story, caring was about all we could do, but every action 
Every act of service with a patient would put us at great risk and was discouraged by my superiors. So I would sneak into the rooms under the guise of fixing an IV, and I'd rearrange their swollen limbs and linger there for just an extra minute with my hand on their forearms. I did it for the both of us. There was no other human touch at this time for me other than that between me and my patients. Even between the healthcare workers, there was no high fives, no hugs. All facial expressions were hidden behind masks. It was bizarre and cold. I felt the need to connect to my patients to reconfirm that this was all real. Beyond the physical acts of tending to their body as it lived on separated from their consciousness, there's a pact we make to fight for them while they can't advocate for themselves and to know and respect when their battle is over. You use IV drips, fentanyl, and propofol in pursuit of this painless amnesia. It is the least you can do. You watch their vital signs for any signal that the fog is thinning and they become alert to the true terror of their situation because what COVID does to a body could be horrific and most people just want to die in their sleep. And every one of my patients died. One of them was actively dying for hours. I watched him from the other side of the glass door riding the line between here and gone. He wouldn't let go until I went into his room and I held his hand. And then it happened really quickly. I wished them all well on their journey. Before I zipped up the body bags, I'd send them off with a safe travels because who knows what happens after the here and now. Newscasters were comparing COVID to a war. The hospital even gave us these stars from retired U.S. flags. War's not my jam, but the metaphor was fitting. I remember accounts from injured soldiers bawling over missing limbs, not because they were mourning their loss, but because it meant they couldn't return to the battlefield and their platoon would have to go on without them while they were left in the dark on the sidelines with all their feelings and without all that consuming distraction of survival. Seemed crazy to me then, but I, I came to identify my fear of getting sick, whether from COVID or cancer, as largely a fear of abandoning my post and it didn't seem so crazy anymore. When you wear all that PPE, you're no longer identifiable as an individual. People can barely see your face and your badge is covered, so you're recognizable only as a team member, a soldier, if you will, totally de-individualized. But outside the hospital, I became hyper-individualized as the gap between what I was experiencing expanded exponentially from what my friends were going through while they sheltered in place. Their version of the monster was loud and big. Its destruction made headlines and caused economic collapse. My version was this rhythmic beeping until it wasn't, and then it was just quiet. I visited my monster daily, and day by day it told me more about itself. My monster lay silently on surfaces until everything I owned became ours together. It's impossible to unsee what I saw with COVID. A couple weeks into it, I found myself ragged with the repeated trauma, and I found it difficult to connect to anybody but my fellow healthcare workers. But I couldn't live in this bubble alone because outside of the hospital, things were going badly. During this time, my dad fell off a ladder and broke his pelvis. An elderly relative I care for fell, and I left one shift one night to a voicemail saying she was in the emergency room. My wife was grieving the loss of our touch, and my doctor canceled my surgery. That surgery that would determine whether or not I had cancer, a disease that killed my mom and was now smoldering in the plasma of my dad. A fact I ironically found out in March at Disney, the happiest place on earth. The stress of not knowing was taking me to a level of distress I hadn't visited in my 40 years. Fortunately, the height of COVID in New York City was a pretty good time to be a nurse. Almost nobody said no to you. Your likeness was marketed as heroic, and any commercial that didn't feature a nurse was just a barbaric symbol of capitalism. Nurses. We could sell a Subaru to a Subaru salesman. 
That is to say, we had some pull. So towards the end of April, I called my doctor and I pleaded for her to please, please do my surgery as soon as possible. And because I was a nurse, aka a hero without a cape, she made special accommodations for me and was able to set up my surgery within that week. I was almost looking forward to it. That week had been my worst one yet. In my straw that broke the camel's back moment, that elderly relative who I cared for dismissed my pleas for her to be careful, saying, there are worse ways to die, and then I flew into a rage, challenging her to name one, and then at that very moment, I realized the level of trauma I had been experiencing. That night, I took a paper cup filled with whiskey to Walgreens, drank it all, outstretched my arm into a shelf of their seasonal goods aisle, and emptied the entirety of their 70% off Easter candy selection into my cart. That night, I drank Cadbury mini-eggs straight from the carton, what I now refer to as my Fiona Gallagher total breakdown moment. And you know you're having a shitty go at it when surgery is the highlight of your month, but I think I just needed to be cared for. I needed to be the patient. I needed someone to take on all the tasks of being in a body for a few hours so I could just sleep off the reality of being a human at this time. Just before I was being led to the operating room, I asked to use the bathroom one more time, and the doctor said, I mean, we're going to put a catheter in you, so go if you'd like to, but no need to do it on our behalf. And instead of being horrified, it just sounded like luxury. Imagine that. They even pee for you in this place. Laying on the operating table with my arms tied down and useless, a nurse rubbed my head so kindly. Touch, touch, touch. The anesthesiologist told me his plan. Fentanyl, then propofol just like what I gave my patients, the promise of analgesia and the gift of amnesia. More people entered the room. The surgical team had at least eight people in it. I knew in just a matter of minutes I'd be naked and manipulated and entered and I'd be observed in a manner that in any other day would have me nauseous with the humiliation and shame. But butted up against the loneliness and fear I felt over the last month, it just felt so nice that so many people cared. And then I was asleep. Waking from surgery is like crawling through a sweet, soft marshmallow, then realizing it's in a fire. The nurse asked me if I was in pain and then pushed those magical opiates into my veins. The doctor told me all went well and that she was 90% sure I didn't have cancer and I could leave whenever I was ready. I didn't know how to tell her. I didn't want to leave this place where human touch still existed and they take away your pain and they tell you they're 90% sure you're going to be okay. was Harvey Katz in summer 2020. Harvey is a nurse living and working in Brooklyn, New York, and one of the hosts and creators of Take Two Storytelling, a monthly storytelling show and podcast. Before we continue on today, I just want to remind everyone that if you want to support stories like Harvey's, if you, like all of us at the Story Collider, believe in the power these stories have to change our understanding of how science happens and who it belongs to, you can sign up to support the Story Collider on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash the story collider. We so appreciate the support of our patrons, especially during this unpredictable time. You can also check out storycollider.org for more information on upcoming shows and workshops. We have outdoor shows coming up this fall in New York, Atlanta, St. Louis, and more. And no matter where you are, we have live stream tickets available for other upcoming shows. 
So now, here's Harvey Katz again, this time in June 2021, telling his story for a small room full of Story Collider team members at Caveat in New York City at our first annual Proton Prom livestream fundraiser. When I tell my wife that I'm a stone-cold therapy top who has manipulated every therapist into changing the subject when it gets real, she is rightfully unimpressed. But, like, I warn them of my powers, and still I have changed the subject from my dead mom to local politics quicker than you can say counterproductive on more than one occasion. And it's not good for me. Like, I'm going to therapy because I need it. I've got this problem. I can't cry. I don't cry. I haven't done it in decades. I can't reach those, like, those low, low feelings, and I also, I can't feel the high feelings. I live in this muted palette of, like, beige to periwinkle. You know, my emotional experience is just so limited. And, you know, like, when my friends are, are feeling, like, high moments of joy and I'm with them or we're having, like, a shared moment of grief, one of two things inevitably happen to me. Either I have this very visceral feeling of, like, a, a garage door just sort of closing me in and locking me out of the moment, or I'm literally locked out of my body, like I leave my body and I can't return to it to, to you know, join in this moment with people. And because I can't be present in it, then I don't form a memory of it, and it's like I just never was there. And I've even asked therapists, like, you know, am I a sociopath? Am I autistic? And they say, no, you know, you just have a tendency to disassociate. And, like, that felt too light for me. So, so I consulted the world's most powerful doctor, Google Doc, and I did a web search, you know, for like, why I can't cry, all these like really sad web searches, and I came up with like the web self-diagnosis of depersonalization disorder. And, uh, and I thought like, how do I turn this, turn this into a good thing, right? So I, on my interview for my first nursing job, I, I figured I would get the question like, why do you think you're a good fit for the emergency room? And I would say something like, well, I'm very calm in moments, like in highly emotional moments. And they would hire me on the spot. Um, but they didn't, they didn't ask the question. But they did hire me. And um, I got my first nursing job straight out of nursing school as my dream job as emergency room nurse in, starting in January 2020, which we all can agree was the moment just before it all hit the fan in New York City. And the way it works at this hospital is that you, you don't go straight to the emergency room because that would be crazy for a new nurse. They train you a little bit in inpatient care. And I started an inpatient, regular inpatient unit, and uh, they do things, at something called primary nursing, which is that they try to assign the same patients to the same nurses as often as possible because you really get to know that patient. You can really do a nice, you know, you can treat them like, you know, continuity of care. They get treated better. And I had this one guy that I, I'd been working with for like a month. He was cranky, but we really got to like each other in the end. And one day I come into work, and his door is shut. And there's a sign now on his door indicating that he's a, a COVID rule-out case. And I just thought, like, no way, not this dude. You know, I've been working with him for so long. Um, I didn't really have time to think about it, because like 10 minutes into the shift, his oxygen levels drop. He codes really fast. He's in full cardiac arrest. And this is mid-March. We have, like, no PPE in the hospital. And, um, and so they were really limiting the amount of people inside the code. So it was just, they just picked me, worst option ever. And a new doctor also didn't know anything. It was just, like, 
we were just totally out of our depth. You know, and I'm in there and I'm like pumping his chest and there's doctors outside the door and they're yelling at us of what to do or go faster, pump faster, getting this med. It was the worst relay race as I was like running to get a med and coming back and push it. And like CPR is so violent on a body and this guy just, he really had a very, very poor prognosis even before he died this time. And so they did the, the really kind thing, which is that they sort of ended the code a little bit earlier than they would in a normal situation. And then, and then it was, you know, like when you were doing CPR, like I'm in this moment of like incredible adrenaline pumping. You've got this stinky stress sweats, you know, like everything is going slow motion and a million miles at the same time. The monitors are alarming, the most alarming alarm sounds that are just panic inducing. And then it's over. And you've got, all of a sudden, there's nothing. And in this moment between, like, extreme action and no action at all, I felt it. Like, there was this tightness in my throat, and I felt the swell rising in my body, and I thought, oh, my God, it's going to happen. Like, I'm going to cry. And I just thought, like, three or maybe more therapists have, like, tried to take me to this precipice and failed, and here I was, like, king of cry mountain. And I was like, all right, keep it cool. And I was like, excuse me. And I walked to the storage room and I, and I steadied myself and I tried to like relax the borders of my body so they would like stretch against my self trying, you know, my body trying to leave itself. And just as like the cry was just like fixing a breach to the surface, the charge nurse comes in, cried us, interrupt us. I lost the moment. It all dissolved and went away. I, I lost my opportunity. Well, like a week later, I was transferred to ICU uh, to do my training there. And there it was like like hospice in space. You know, everybody wearing spacesuits. Everybody had, was dying of COVID at that time. You know, there was like tubes bringing oxygen and nutrients to people, bags collecting body waste. It was all just uh, very horrible and strange. And there was like nothing we could do for these patients, even though there was so much we wanted to do. And... um. And so some days there just wasn't like a lot of action. And um, one day my job, I came in and the charge nurse said like, your job today is to watch this person die. They had a DNR, they were already actively dying. They needed somebody to sort of mark the time of death. And then I guess I would get something else to do that day. Uh, so I just stood there, you know, and I watched through the glass, and the numbers just got worse and worse. And it happens kind of slowly, then it pauses, and slowly, then it pauses, and then all of a sudden, it was just dead. And I marked the time of death, cleaned up his body, prepared him for transport to the morgue. And the whole time, I just, like, I just felt nothing, you know? It's just there doing a job. And um, a doctor who had been working alongside me, you know, taking care of this patient for the last couple of weeks, came up, and he was kind of shaken by the death, um, and he said, you know, are you okay? And I was like, oh, yeah, no problem. And, like, I knew immediately I messed up. Like, you know, it was like I had just shared a part of myself that I didn't mean to share to him. And I, like, he found out that I was this, like, robot, not person, like this imposter of a human. And now I was really embarrassed that my secret was out at work, that I didn't have the skill set to be a human. And so... You know, I, and I think of, of crying as a tool, a tool of being human. You know, it's controlled by our autonomic nervous system. It's a part of our body we have no control over. It's the part of our body that, you know, makes us blush when we have a crush. It makes our heart race faster when we're scared. Um, 
evolutionary scientists theorize that crying is this auditory and visual signal to other people that we're in pain and that we need help. Um, tears, they have this protein in them and it makes it so they cling. This is like the sweetest thing. It makes it so they cling to your cheek just a little bit longer so that this like SOS message to other people will just like stick around and, and more people can get it. You know, um, I just think that's the sweetest thing. But, you know, it, crying, it just does a lot of the talking for you. It's sort of like, I think of it as like that TikTok trend that's like, tell me you're in pain and need help without telling me you're in pain and need help. It really works. And, you know, without this skill, without this like tool or this decompression method, as the pandemic went on, I went into full on disassociation mode. Like I would imagine myself like walking beside myself in this world. And, and I thought like, Maybe this other other me will just like take an unagreed upon turn and, and wander off and and that'll be that. And I don't even know if I cared anymore, you know? And uh, and then Aaron Barker called me and said, Would you do a story for us uh, for our series on COVID? And it was like, Yeah, of course. And I spent the next month sort of like weaving together this patchwork of all these experiences I had and, and trying to find the line that made this you know, a nice emotional arc for the story, as one does. And, um, oh, God, I forgot what I was even saying. Anyways, you know, when, when you don't have, when you can't cry, you don't, like, you have to use your words. And when you retell, you have to relive. And when you're writing your story, you're, when you're putting your story together, you, you have to sort of, it's an exercise in being present, you know, sure you're present in the past, but you have to stay still in that moment long enough to create the sensory snapshot that you can share with other people. And interestingly enough, meditation, according to the internet, is one of the treatments used for people with uh, depersonalization disorder. Now, story listening, on the other hand, that's a crapshoot, you know? I think of it as like, taking a pill that some rando handed you in a club and you don't know if it's going to be an upper or a downer until it's like, <laughs> you cannot reverse course at that point. And so when this story came out, I, I just didn't know how I was going to feel when I listened to it. Um, and it took me a while and then I did listen to it. And then I listened to it again. And I listened to it again. And then I found myself just kind of listening to it all the time. Like I would just be in the Trader Joe's listening to my story or riding my bike home listening to my story. And I just needed it to remind myself that like what I went through was real and try to find a moment of connection because the whole thing, you know, I just, just was all very bizarre to live through. I mean, for all of us this last year. And um, I, I sort of, I've had a few surgeries and I've read surgical notes and you can't believe like all the ways that your body is torn through and, and wounded and manipulated and you just have no connection to it. Like you just remember the time before and the time after and you think, how could I have been so like gone through such trauma and have not felt anything? And listening to my story was like reading those surgical notes. Like it gave me a moment to connect to what happened and, and understand the location and the the mechanism behind the trauma and give me sort of like a, a, a path to understanding how to properly monitor these wounds for healing. And I think that's, 
I don't know, today was the story. I wanted it to be an ode to the, the power of storytelling and, and how much healing listening to my own story did for me. When I had a patient, you know, when I have patients in the hospital, the first thing you do is you just ask them to, you, you, you ask them their story. Like you want to know, like describe to me how you feel and describe to me how you got to this point. And I just think um, I'm just so grateful for the storytelling community and I'm so great. I mean, 11 years, so many stories, like all these people getting to, to think about how like the world relates to them and, and how other people's pain um, relates to them and, and how they can sort of manage their own pain and feelings. So anyways, Story Collider, thank you so much. Um, I had this whole thing planned, like going back to the therapy top thing that I can't remember now, how you're the top, so I couldn't top you, I wouldn't change you if I could, something like that. Anyways, thanks, y'all. Again, that was Harvey Katz. I'm so grateful to Harvey for being willing to share the story with us, especially while it's ongoing. Even if it can be therapeutic, it's not easy to construct and tell a story about an emotionally traumatic experience, especially when that experience is still so fresh and unresolved. So this story is a real gift. The Story Collider is also very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast is produced by me, Erin Barker, Executive Director and Co-Founder of The Story Collider, with assistance from Story Collider's Program Director, Nissa Greenberg, and Senior Podcast Editor, Jun Chen. Special thanks goes out to Story Collider's board and the rest of our staff, including Managing Director, Anne-Marie Lonsdale, Operations Manager, Lindsay Cooper, and Marketing Manager, Nikesha Roberts-Washington, without whom none of this would be possible. The stories featured in today's episode were produced by me, Erin Barker. Our theme music was composed by Eva Gertz of the Fulton Street Music Group. We'll be back next Friday with the next installment of this series. Once we complete these six episodes, we'll be moving back to programming our podcast from live recordings. Though if you hear less audience response on these recordings, it will be because many of these performances are to relatively empty rooms, aside from Story Collider team members and other storytellers, for the safety of our communities. But before we get there, we have five more episodes of Stories of COVID-19. So we will see you next week for stories on the theme of fear. Until then, stay safe, wash your hands, wear a mask, get vaccinated if you can, love each other. Thanks for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.